Welcome to the Advancing Women Podcast, where ambitious women come together to challenge the status quo, advance their careers, and up-level their lives. The Advancing Women Podcast is hosted by gender equity expert and executive coach, Dr. Kimberly D. Simone. Welcome, warriors, to the Advancing Women Podcast. Women in the workforce, especially women in traditionally male-dominated careers, consistently report a very real sense of disparity and otherness. But it's more than just otherness. We have problematized women in an effort to individualize the reasons for the inequity to blame the women, rather than address the societal, cultural, and organizational norms that create the barriers. And one of those quote-unquote problems women are consistently told we have to deal with to fix is imposter syndrome. We've been hearing a lot about imposter syndrome lately. There was a very impactful Harvard Business Review article titled, Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome by Rashika Tulshin and Jody Ann Burry that has garnered a lot of attention for bravely challenging us to disrupt this narrative that pathologizes women. And pathologize means to regard or treat as abnormality. And this may seem like an exaggeration, but the term syndrome means a group of symptoms which consistently occur. So I would argue it is fair to suggest that we have gone beyond problematizing women to, in some cases, pathologizing women. And this happens in part because of the lack of context in the discussion of imposter syndrome. As Brene Brown has said, quote, when things are stripped of context, they can easily become pathologized, end quote. And too often, the environmental and structural piece is missing context, and this plays a vital role. In a recent study titled Imposter Syndrome for Women in Male-Dominated Careers, the author says, quote, context can play a vital role in exacerbating imposter syndrome. Because as people look to determine what characteristics make an authentic professional, they tend to compare themselves to those deemed authenticated. And so imposter syndrome could be described as the internalization of society's expectation, causing people to gaslight themselves. And again, for those who aren't as familiar with the term gaslighting, it's essentially making someone question their own reality. And that is really at the core of imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome was coined by Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes in 1978. Since then, it has been extensively studied and discussed. It can be powerfully felt and affect our lives in a number of ways. Broadly speaking, there are three main themes of the imposter syndrome. First, not believing you deserve the success you have achieved. Second, a feeling of fraudulence about that success. And finally, a feeling of dread that you will be found out. That people will realize that you don't belong or shouldn't have that success. A simple search online will point to a plethora of approaches or techniques to deal with, reduce, or overcome this problem. Although research has shown that both men and women can experience the phenomenon, it is women who tend to be the focus of the advice, the workshops, the books aimed at overcoming the problem. And part of this is because the original study by Clance and Imes was focused solely on women. 
Their 1978 research described the experience of an individual who doubts that her achievements are the result of her own genuine competence and instead attributes those achievements to luck, charm, attractiveness, etc., causing her to feel as though she does not deserve what she has achieved. And this history, this context is why we now have this false premise well adopted by the media, self-help gurus, and organizations that women have this problem. It is unfair to make this a woman problem, but we do need to consider how women and persons of color disproportionately experience the many workforce biases that have contributed to the problem. Psychologists explain that the imposter syndrome can be magnified by societal and organizational influences, which then, especially for women, can lead to negative psychological effects like anxiety, depression, and lower self-esteem. We are constantly pressured with this false premise aimed at fixing women, which is why Tolshin and Barry's Harvard Business Review article, Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome, is so powerful. Imposter syndrome directs our view towards fixing women at work Instead of fixing the places where women work, bias and exclusion exacerbate feelings of doubt. It is that oversimplification that women just need to quote unquote man up and all our inequities will evaporate. But research shows again and again that workplace biases and stereotypes are instigators of imposter syndrome. And so the problem needs to be addressed at a structural level and certainly at the organizational level. The answer is not at the individual level. The answer is not fixing women, and it is not about women learning to overcome. It is about creating a culture of belonging. Organizations need to lean in to create true belonging and rethink organizational fit. When women feel imposter syndrome, it isn't inherent to their gender. It is amplified by the many biases we talk about so often here at the Advancing Women podcast, stereotype threat, ideal worker norms, prescriptive gender biases, think leader, think male bias, tightrope bias, prove it again bias, lack of fit, outgroup bias, which all create that lack of belonging. And this lack of fit model is especially important for understanding how expectations, stereotypes, and stigmas impact people. Psychologists define lack of fit as perceived incongruity in the matchup between the perception of attributes an individual brings to the work setting and the perception of the job requirements. And if the two categories match well and are considered a good fit, then success is expected. But if the fit does not match up well, then failure is expected. This, of course, benefits the existing power structure in terms of expectation. Incongruity between the attributes of a person and the perceived nature of the requirements for the job may result in occupational gender bias. So, for example, plentiful research shows that women are less likely to be considered good fits than identically qualified men for management roles and leadership positions. There is a robust body of research relative to think leader, think male bias, who is deemed as professional. This male is the default or the societal blueprint for leadership. Gender bias rooted in the interpretations of who the expert is, or at least who the expert should be, along with the assumptions of which gender is more competent. It has been shown through research that the male vantage point is often seen as the default in relation to expertise or what is considered the ideal or the norm. 
Stereotype threat describes the vulnerability, pressure, or concern a member of a stigmatized group experiences when faced with the possibility of confirming or being judged by a negative stereotype that exists about their group. And women report this consistently. If I cry, I'm going to be considered weak. If I present as assertive or powerful, I'll be seen as lacking in social skills. The prescriptive stereotypes generally assigned to women equate success with the expectation that she be nice, communal, helpful, modest, interpersonally sensitive, and a good team player. Successful men, conversely, are stereotypically described as competent, direct, assertive, competitive, ambitious, and leaders. There's tightrope and prove-it-again biases, which are the two most common biases experienced by women who report feeling imposter syndrome. Having to prove competence over and over as a result of your competence being questioned over and over impacts this feeling of imposter syndrome. And of course, tightrope bias is that exhausting balance of being seen as competent, being respected, being considered for leadership roles, while also attempting to be seen as nice and likable. And it was exemplified so well by Tina Fey and Amy Poehler on their Saturday Night Live skit, where they joked about what the media said about Hillary Clinton versus Sarah Palin. The media messaging of one competent but unlikable and the other likable but incompetent. This is that double bind. And Tina Fey said it perfectly in her best-selling book, Bossy Pants, referencing Sarah Palin and Hillary Clinton, where she said, quote, in real life, these women experienced different sides of the same sexism coin. People who didn't like Hillary called her a ball buster. People who didn't like Sarah called her caribou Barbie. People attempted to marginalize these women based on their gender. As Joan Williams, who coined the term tightrope bias, notes, The messaging is so mixed, you can't win either way. And Williams references Stanford sociologist Shelley Carell, who said in an interview for the book, quote, you have to have influence. You have to get other people to be able to go along with your ideas. You need to gain access to informal information. And you have to do all this while avoiding being threatening, not upsetting the hierarchy, and create that sense you fit in the organization, end quote. The invisible rules we have to follow can be in conflict with the behaviors that present as confident and competent. If women play the stereotypical, quote unquote, female role, more communal and consensus building, looking out for the team, they are often considered to be weak or not right for leadership. If they jump in and act more aggressive and confident, they're often seen as bitchy, less likable, hard to work with. So there's this narrow range of behaviors that are deemed appropriate for women. It's always there, even in how people respond to our body language. We even have to be mindful of how our presence is received and responded to. We know from research, like the work of Dr. Carol Dweck and others, that mindset can impact our behavior. How we think affects how we feel, like our confidence, and how we feel then affects our behavior. But social psychologist Dr. Amy Cuddy's research addresses how the opposite may be true as well. Cuddy's research claims that not only do our minds change our body, but our bodies change our mind. Cuddy's research found that there are actually hormonal changes that can be relevant to our behavior because our bodies can change our mind. So if we feel because of the environment around us that we have to be smaller 
or less aggressive. We may physically do so. And this can impact not only how we are perceived or viewed externally, but importantly, as it relates to imposter syndrome, it can impact how we talk to ourselves, how we feel about ourselves. So as women, we're socialized to present less powerfully, lest we experience the double bind backlash of our presenting in a power position as women, which is often considered distasteful. Cuddy asserts that power poses and power positions, when done over and over again, can change our minds and thus make us feel more confident. Not so much fake it till you make it, but as she says, fake it until you feel it, until you are it. And so we have this disconnect, right? We have a workforce culture that demands women and persons of color assimilate and act more like the existing power structure while simultaneously scorning them when they present contrary to stereotypical expectations. And when this contributes to imposter syndrome, we are expected to self-help, workshop, or professionally develop our way out of feeling this imposter syndrome. This may be the biggest gaslighting of all time. We talk about adapting as a very positive character trait. And of course, we all need to a degree to adapt, meaning really to adjust to our environment. But when we consider this within the context of gender bias and power structures, it can mean underrepresented groups need to adapt to the existing power structure and to assimilate or resemble the status quo to fit in. And it's such a dysfunctional win-lose paradigm. Be more like this, adapt. Then when you feel like an imposter, go fix your imposter syndrome. And with current diversity initiatives, we're hearing more and more seemingly well-meaning language that can exacerbate the problem. I'm talking about the welcoming of underrepresented groups to bring their authentic selves to the workforce. On one hand, we hear about the importance of adaptability, but on the other hand, that we should be our authentic selves. And it's a trap that women and persons of color have fallen into only to realize that the last thing we should bring to the workforce is our authentic selves. And growing evidence suggests that when we hear just be yourself or bring your authentic self, we don't believe it. We can't believe what organizations say because we see what they do. We see what happens, the consequences of letting our guard down. And Burry, who co-authored the Harvard Business Review article I referenced, articulates this bias pattern brilliantly in her incredibly popular TEDx talk, The Myth of Bringing Your Authentic Self to Work, which if you haven't listened to, you should absolutely listen to it. It is 15 minutes. You definitely won't regret spending. As a woman of color, Burry expresses the anxiety, upset, and bewilderment that comes from answering the call for authenticity at work. The call for passionate people with diverse, fresh perspectives who challenge old ways of thinking, but then too often that same workplace culture fails to support that requested authenticity. And so women, and especially women of color, learn quickly that being authentic as requested is a road to backlash, lack of fit, fewer opportunities, and long-term damage to their professional capital. We learn that people-pleasing Getting in line with the existing power structure is actually the real expectation. And recent research from the Hastings Women's Law Journal confirms that women feel the demand for conformity rather than authenticity. 
that women, and especially women of color, conceal their genuine ideas and opinions, choosing instead to voice only those that they believe will receive positive responses from their audience. Of course, this can impact feeling imposter syndrome when people attempt to give people what they want to please the existing power, the answers that they believe these people want to hear, acting as people pleasers, it creates feeling inauthentic. And this inauthenticity is seen as the price we pay to gain the approval of the in-group. This, again, is the role of socialization, both the gender socialization that happens over our lifetime, but also the workplace socialization necessary to fit in, to belong. As long as men are seen as the default in terms of holding those top positions of power, pay, prestige, and impact in organizations, as the data shows is indisputably the case, they are the in-group. And for too long, the best practice advice to solve this is to have women adapt and figure out how to belong. And of course, this isn't working because it individualizes a structural problem. The answer is organizations creating a culture of belonging, not individualizing this as a woman problem. Homophily is a concept in sociology describing the tendency of individuals to associate and bond with similar others. It's the idea that birds of a feather flock together. And this is partly why the advice to bring our authentic self favors the existing power structure, the existing norm, those birds of a feather. We are meant to assimilate because bringing our authentic self is realistically likely to make the in-group less comfortable, to make them think differently, to make them change, and change is uncomfortable. And making the in-group uncomfortable has negative consequences. They often don't like you as much, they don't want to work with you as much, and they think you are less than, that you somehow don't belong, that you don't fit. And so, my manifest statement this week, the key takeaway is this. We have to interrupt the false narrative that we as women have to fix our imposter syndrome, that we are somehow holding ourselves back, that our lack of confidence is holding us back. We must end the problematizing and pathologizing of women, the man up and be more confident, oversimplified advice that is saturated in bias and only further exacerbates the inequity and the problematic consequences of the inequity. This advice, as Barry states in her TED Talk, is really about historically underrepresented individuals being expected to, quote, contort ourselves into this caricature of what some call professionalism, end quote. It is really just male-centered work ethos, the expectation to, as Barry says, meet the standards that meet the comforts of those who hold social and institutional power. As Tolshian and Burry explain in their Harvard Business Review article, quote, the answer to overcoming imposter syndrome is not to fix individuals, but to create an environment that fosters a variety of leadership styles and in which diverse racial, ethnic, and gender identities are seen as just as professional as the current model, end quote. In short, more focus on fixing the structures and organizational inequities, less focus on fixing the women. For more resources, you can visit my website, www.advancingwomenpodcast.com and connect on Instagram at Advancing Women Podcast. I love getting your feedback, so please email me at drdsimone at advancingwomenpodcast.com 
I just want to thank Joe Jacobs, the audio warrior who wrote the music for this podcast, and a huge thanks to Heather Harris, the creative warrior who designed the Advancing Women podcast logo. And thanks to all of you for joining me here today.